Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. The book of Numbers has been a joy for us to begin to walk through it because it's been showing us a, a very real and a very vivid portrait of a people, Israel, and their journey from Egypt to the promised land. And one of the interesting things we've been seeing throughout this book is that God is always faithful, even in the midst of a fickle people like Israel. We, we've seen that the preparation of Israel's God's people really centered on the presence of the tabernacle in the middle of their camp. And so we've seen kind of front-ended in numbers that the presence of God is what distinguishes his people. We've also seen that because of that, they're called to live in whole devotion, holiness, purity unto him. And we've seen, unfortunately, the human heart and the people of Israel displayed, have we not? They walk in unbelief. They walk in pride. They grumble and complain, not believing God will do or carry out what he says he will. But we know that even in the midst of these fickle people, God has shown himself faithful. Throughout, sprinkled throughout this, this whole book, you see that God has shown himself as one to keep his word, both in judgment, but also in salvation. And if you're just joining us, understand that the people of Israel, who are God's chosen people, they rejected God at the promised land in chapter 13 and 14. They rejected him, saying, God, you are incapable of bringing about the promises which you've made. And God said, because of this, a whole generation will now die off. Forty years you will wander in the wilderness. And we are coming right towards the end of that generation. We've seen them wandering and and them grumbling and continuing to complain. But still God's mercy and grace. And we're coming to the end of that section right now. Where we see an entire generation die because of their unbelief. And we come to the end of that generation. If you look back at chapters 20 and 21, I wish we could spend some time there, but we're going to move through those very quickly. We're not going to spend time there, but think of this. We see the death of Aaron, of Miriam, and even the consequences of Moses and his rebellion against God. That even Moses, God's own spokesperson, will not enter the promised land because of his unbelief. And we see this fulfilled in chapters 20 and 21. And so we see kind of the ending of a generation coming to an end and then 21, we, we begin to see victories. We begin to see them beat and conquer two kings of the Amorites, both Og and Sheon. We see that they're beginning to move towards the promised land. And kind of just out of nowhere, we get this scene kind of towards the enemy's camp. We see, we get this opportunity to kind of look behind the scene at what God does, even when Israel isn't realizing it. Look there again with me at chapter 22. Chapter 22, it says, the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab. This is kind of their third location that they've settled down. First it was at Mount Sinai, and then it was Kadesh Barna, and now they're settling here at the plains of Moab. And it's just kind of in the valley overlooking the Jordan area. And Jericho is just on the other side. If you're familiar with the Bible, Jericho is one of the first cities that we see a great victory of the Lord. And so they're there. And so they're in the valley and then there's mountains surrounding them. And what they don't realize is that Moab, another people, actually descendants of Esau, are there. And they're conspiring against them without them even realizing it. I'm sure they were aware these people were there. But they don't know that that Balak is kind of freaking out. He's like, ah, 
they just destroy the Amorites. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Because the Amorites already have whooped us and they just whooped the Amorites. It's kind of like Georgia and Florida. We won't go there. Just kidding. I'm not going to say it, but I... We know the reality, right? That they're there. And I love this scene because one of the things I need you to understand is that we, though this is recorded in numbers, they're not aware of it going on at the time it was going on. We know it was later on that they hear of, of Balaam and his prophecies of blessing when, when Balak wanted him to be cursing them. So he's working behind the scenes, carrying out the very things he says he will always carry out. And that's one of the huge things I want to just kind of set before us as we dig in today. Is that God's people are always cared for. Because God calls them blessed, they cannot be cursed. As God's people are blessed, they cannot be cursed. Because that's what we see here. We see the enemy camp is always active against God's people. We see this in all of chapter 22. The enemy's camp is always active against God's people. These very people, look there with me again at verse 2. It says, Balak the son of Zippor saw that all of Israel had done to the Amorites and they were in great dread and fear. And what does any pagan king do? He goes and he finds a seer, a divinator, someone who was capable in their mind of bringing about a curse or a blessing. And they didn't go to some Joe Schmo down the corner. They went to Balaam. He was someone who was well known in this region for his gift of bringing about curses. We see this in verse, interestingly, in verse, the end of verse six. It says, I know that whom you bless is blessed and whom you cursed is cursed. What's interesting is we see in this section, we see a glimpse into the enemy's camp. They're plotting against God's people. They're overcome with fear. And three different times we see he tries to get them to do something against these people. He tries to hire this seer, this sorcerer, to bring about a curse on God's people. Balaam, a well-known prophet from Mesopotamia. I mean, he's a logical choice. So Balak sends princes and he sends riches to Balaam to try to sway him to come and curse the lamb. Balaam's an interesting character. Because there's kind of this tension, like he hears from God, so he's a genuine prophet, or is he merely just being used by God to bring about the very curses or blessings that he designs? I'm not going to have time to dig completely into that, but I'd love to have a discussion with you later. But three times we see he encounters the living God and appears and is told that he speaks on his behalf. Look there with me at verse 8. Verse 8, the Balak sends these elders, these princes, and these riches. And in verse 8 it says, He said to them, Lodge here night, and I will bring back to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and says, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Well, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight them against them and drive them out. And listen to God. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Now this word we see blessed kind of repeated time and time and time again throughout this section. Right. And unfortunately, this word, um, if we're not careful in, in modern day culture, this word has lost its beauty and its wonder. Right. Because the biggest thing we need to understand about, when we're going to see it kind of fulfilled in what, what he blesses them with, is blessed is the reality of being connected to a covenant-keeping God. That is the center of all blessings, is being connected to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. That is the greatest blessing of all blessings. Right? When we sing the song, from whom all blessings flow, because the greatest blessing is being connected to Yahweh. 
and a covenant relationship with him. But it's clearly see here that God says you can't curse them because I've blessed them. You can't supersede what I've done. You cannot renounce what I have not renounced. You cannot revoke what I have made true. And, and again, Israel has no clue this is going on behind the scenes. They're in camp. They're building their fires. They're sitting on the, the, the edge of the Jordan trying to figure out what the next step that the Lord's going to bring. They have no clue. But God is always working behind the scenes to care for his people. This is the providence of God is the theological term we use. That he is working actively in a world to bring about the very things he promised he will bring about. There is not one moment of the day God is not working to bring about his purposes. And so I believe one of the great things and purposes of this section is to build confidence in us, God's people. That we as God's people and Israel as God's people, we are blessed because we're connected to God and therefore we cannot be cursed. And we'll tie that into the New Testament in a variety of ways. But Balaam, he encounters the Lord here. And three different times we see him encounter him. And we see throughout this entire section, Balaam and God kind of interacting. But the overarching truth is that God's people are blessed and no one can curse them. Because no one is greater than God. I notice in this chapter that, that Balaam shows himself for who he truly is. And, and one of the ways we see that is in this interesting dialogue with a donkey. All right, look there with me in chapter 22, verse 22. So finally they come to him a second time, these men, and they, he says, okay, I'll go with you. Uh, but then we see he gets on his donkey to travel because he's not in the region. And verse 22 says, but God's anger was kindled against him. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned out to the side of the road and went into the field. Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. The angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. And so struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel, she lied down underneath Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you struck me three times? Now the seer, right, the most renowned prophet in the region, couldn't see. Isn't it ironic that a donkey was actually capable of seeing God and what he was carrying out? That a donkey was the very thing that could see the angel of the Lord. And this prophet Balaam, who supposedly was one of the greatest in this time, couldn't even see. And again, I think some of the things we see here is this section reminds us that God is greater than any man. No matter how gifted the man may be, regardless if he's a prophet or a false prophet, there is no one who can stay the hand of the Lord. What's interesting is look at, listen, look at the little bit of irony there in verse 29. And Balaam said to the donkey, because you've made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand that I could kill you. But what had he just not seen yet? That there is a, someone with a sword actually drawn, trying to kill him. An angel of the Lord and the donkey is there. It says, 
Balaam, am I not your donkey you've ridden on all your life and all these days in my habit to treat you this way? No. Then the Lord opened his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. It's the angel of the Lord who stood with his sword in hand, preparing to kill Balaam. Balaam is allowed to see the angel. And we even see that he, be, he appears to some level repent and say, well, Lord, I've sinned. And we see that in verse 35. But at the end of the day, he says, now go tell these men exactly what I tell you. And one of the enormous truths that we can see in this scene is that God is always aware. Do you ever feel like God has forgotten you sometimes? Maybe your circumstance feels like it's just beyond God's thing. But see, God is always aware. He knew what was going on with Balak and Balaam. He is aware of his people at all times. And not only is he aware, but he's active. He's active in carrying out things, even when you don't see it. God's always behind the scenes, providing, caring, protecting, moving amongst his people. Even when we don't deserve it. Remember, we just saw that they had a rebellion. Well, we didn't get to see it, but they just had a rebellion with a bronze serpent, right? Where they, they began to rebel against God and serpents began to bite them. And Moses had to lift up a bronze serpent, which is a portrait of Christ that John uses so vividly. And again, we're going to see just after this, there's another rebellion. That even this rebellious people, God is still block, He's still moving. He is still actively saying, you cannot curse those whom I have called my own. They're not even aware at this point that God is always aware. Of every detail in every situation. You know, that's not like me. I try really hard with my with my wife and my daughters to be aware, right? Because I want to be able to meet their needs when they have needs. But unfortunately, not just because there's so many in my house, but because I'm so poor at being aware. That there's needs that go unmet in my home because I'm just simply unaware. But that's not the case with God. There is not one of his children... Whom he says, oh, I just, I forgot about you. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I was so worried about these millions over here that I, I, I just left you to the side and I'll, I'll deal with you tomorrow. I, I can't handle eight right in my home and in that way. But God, he can handle all of his people. He is always aware of your circumstance. And the Bible tells you time and time again, he's already moving behind the scenes to carry out his purposes for you. And we're going to see what those purposes are in these blessings that Balaam brings about. But for those of you in this room who are Christians, have you ever been there where you thought God had forgotten you? You've looked around and it seems as the world was crashing in around you. Find comfort today in this truth that God is aware of you in your circumstance. He knows and he is already moving to bring about his purposes in your life. He is watching over you today. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't claim to believe in God. And one of your first complaints is this. There's evil in the world. I would encourage you to think about it this way. Because we understand the Bible describes evil is actually a result of us, not God. But here's the amazing thing. Let me encourage you to see this morning that the evidence of a living God is not merely in the lack of confusion or chaos, but that a people who have a rock-solid faith in the midst of confusion and chaos. Look to Christians who stand strong saying, my God is aware. He is not unshaken. I mean, he's not shaken. Therefore, I'm not shaken. Look to the Christians who say, though he slay me, I will praise the Lord. Because that's the evidence that, that the living God is still God. That there is a people he has set apart. And he's saying, look at them. They are solid in me. 
And church, that reminds us that we should portray that to the watching world. God is aware and he is active. And the most significant evidence is that his people have confidence in him. Do you? Do you have confidence in him? So Balaam travels with Balak and his people. They arrive. And now we're going to see three different scenes of of many oracles that reveal something real about who God is. So let's look at some of these in verse, starting with verse chapter 23, verse 1. This is, again, he's traveled now the distance from where he was at to Balak and right there by the God's people. Now look at verse 41 of the opening chapter, at the end of chapter uh, 22. It says, And in the morning Balaam, uh, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bethlehem Baal. And there they saw a fraction of the people. In 23, verse 1 says, And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me seven altars. Prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And then Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. And perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whoever whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bear height, and he met God, and God met Balaam. And Balaam said, I have arranged for seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a ram and a bull. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. And he returned to Balak, and thus, shall, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up his discord and said... So there's a scene, right? We're going to see this repeated three different times. They, they go to three different mountaintops and they, they offer seven altars with seven rams and seven bulls, which, which sounds a lot like some of the Levitical things that we would say. Seven is that number we see repeated of completion, of wholeness. And it's almost like they're trying to persuade God at some level, but at the end of the day, God is not thwarted. That he comes now and he speaks to these people. And again, what's Balak's goal? He wants Balaam to do what? Curse these people of Israel. And Balaam stands up now and they've got this grand feast and this sacrifice system happening there. And listen to Balaam's word. He says, from Aram, Balak has has brought me the king of Moab from the east mountains. Come curse Jacob for me. Come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. A people dwelling alone. Not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob? Or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright. And let me my end be like his. And we see something beautiful here, don't we? We see Balaam can do nothing but speak of God's grace and privileges and blessings upon these very people. He says, I can't go against God's word here. I can't curse whom God has not cursed. I can't denounce these things. And look at, look at it specifically at verse 10. This should ring something in our ears as we read through the scriptures. How can I count the dust of Jacob? Again, this is a reference to what? Those of you who are familiar with the story of the people of Israel. The promise in Genesis 13 that God made to their forefather, Abraham. He says, I will make your people as the what? Dust of the earth. And we see here that God is always for his people. And one of the ways that Balaam reminds Balak this is true is that God has already promised and carried out what he said he would do. They are a vast nation. Remember, he's only seen what's a portion of them. And he said, there are too many to number. You want me to speak against this God who's already shown himself faithful to them over the last 400 years? 
You want me to speak against this God who is carried out from a barren man and a barren woman of one seed. Now there's millions of them. You want me to speak against this God who says, these are my people and I will bring about what I promise I will do. And you want me to speak. And he says he can't for who can count the dust of Jacob. And we see that Balaam says, my words cannot renounce God's words. For God's words carry about everything that they promise they will carry about. And we know this to be true because of the phrase he says in verse 10. The dust of Jacob, heading back to Genesis 13, 16. Where God promised Abraham that they will be as the dust of the earth. You see, God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That they would be a vast nation. And now we see God is faithful. Do you believe that to be true? That God is faithful. Remember this took years. Years of faithfully trusting in God. That he would bring about. Even in the midst of persecution and slavery. In the land of Egypt. God brought about the very things he says he will. Because God always is faithful to his word. And he said these are my people. Though Balak tries to bring about a curse on God's people, Balaam declares, this cannot happen, for God is faithful to his people. And just like it's written to remind Israel of God's faithfulness to them, this was written to make us aware also that God is the same God today. If he's called you his own, if he's sealed you by his spirit, then God has never forgotten you. That God will do what he promises you want to do. Here's just a couple promises. Ready? He says he will make you into a new creation. That's yours, church. You can bank on it. That Satan can't say, well, you can't be. You can't be. Old man, old man. No, God says, I am making you a new creature. And bank on it, brother and sister. Because God promised I'm doing this and God's people cannot be cursed if I'm their God. Be a new people. God says I will give you a gift so that the church can thrive and grow and be encouraged. So brothers and sisters, we don't have to say, well, maybe the church is cursed. The curse is the church is not cursed for it is God's people marked by his spirit. So be the church. Because God's covenant-keeping character is bound up in who He is. And He is faithful always and forever. We can have confidence that He cares for us, both in the beautiful things that we experience and in the hardships that we experience. Because all these come from a faithful God. So depending on your season, whether in your midst of a beautiful season or a hard season, know that you serve a God who is aware And he has woven himself to you in such a way that he will move mightily. What's interesting is what you see is Balak. He says, oh, stop doing that, Balaam. Man, I must have been on the wrong mountaintop. Let's go over here to this other mountaintop and let's try it over here. And so we see that in verses 11 through 18. They move to another mountaintop and they begin to carry out the repeated pattern of seven altars and seven bulls and seven rams. But look there with me at verse 18 as God gave Balaam more truths to reveal about who God is for his people. It says, rise, Balak, and hear, give ear to me, O son Zippor. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and he, will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? 
Behold, I've received a command to bless. He has blessed them. I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. Listen to this line. The Lord their God is what? With them. And the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is with them as the horns of a wild oxen. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Nor shall it be said of Jacob or Israel, what has God wrought? Behold a people as a lioness, it rises up as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until as devoured its prey, drunk the blood of the slain. And again, ironically, Balak changes mountaintops because he thinks, well, maybe, oh, that was God's mountain. Let's go over to this mountain because this mountain is not God's mountain. And the very thing Balak pronounces is that God is everywhere, especially among his people. And Balaam says that God is a man that he not, does not lie or change his mind. He fulfills his spoken word. And this oracle, this saying of this pronouncement of blessing highlights that God's care flows from his very presence. God's care flows from his very presence. We see that highlighted in verse 21. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. Why? Because the Lord their God is with them. He says he's with them. And if you're familiar, I would love for you to go and read Exodus 33 this afternoon. Exodus 33. Maybe use it as a a tool to go and speak with with your family about these truths. Because in Exodus 33, we see that God's presence is the very thing that matters most to God's people. Not just that his tabernacle is in the middle of the camp. But remember, Moses is just standing the side of Sinai. And God says, okay, I'm going to send you into the promised land. And I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to provide for you. But I'm not going to go with you. And Moses goes, hold on. If your presence doesn't go with us, then how can we even say we're your people? Because the presence of God is central to God's people. Let me say that again. The presence of God is central to God's people. It's what makes them God's people. Now we see this carried out and fulfilled through the tabernacle here. Because this would be such comfort to them. God is among them. The Israelites would hear that. They would say, oh, he's among us. He knows us. He's aware of us. And yet we, brothers and sisters, on this side of the resurrection, on this side of Pentecost, we have an even more beautiful, better understanding of God's presence because we no longer have to go to a place to experience God. Instead, God come and dwells among us, in us. This means we have it better than even these people. And Balaam is pronouncing blessing over them because God is among them. But here's the good news. God is in us, his people. God's presence is in us by His Spirit. And the Spirit does amazing things. It saves us. It seals us. It brings about a God who is very near. The Bible even describes the Holy Spirit as the what? Comforter. So think about this for a second. Right? Imagine this. Imagine uh, my family goes through a really difficult time. And I send them a letter in the mail giving them words of comfort. I just send them a, it's a letter. So let's say they've lost our dog that we've had for the last eight years of our life. Right? It's just it's very difficult for a family to to lose a, a dog that's loved so much. And and I'm I'm away, so I send them a letter and I say here and I just give them this letter and I'm like just look at my picture because I'm I'm there among you. Would that bring comfort to them? Well, yeah. 
it would bring comfort to them, right? It's like a, it's a letter saying that I'm still their dad. I'm still for them. I'm still good. But also imagine that's like how it is in the Old Testament. But imagine I was there. Like I was literally there that, that they could reach out and, and hold their dad and, and cry because that's what we have as the New Testament. That it's not just a letter God sends us saying, I'm there for you guys. See you in heaven later on. No, he says, I'm there. I'm in you. I'm with you. And I will walk beside you no matter what happens in this life. God's people rejoice about God's presence because we've experienced it by his spirit, through his word, because of Christ. Church, be reminded and remind each other every day, as long as today is called today, that God cares and he is real and present in us. An echo of God's people to each other is that God is a presence in our time of need. Both in the beautiful and in the difficult. Remind each other of this truth. Remind each other of the spirit that resides in us. And the most fantastic way we walk this out is that we become a people who love to pray. Because that's what the Spirit does. It, it, it draws us into the Father's presence. The Spirit reminds us that we can cry out, Abba, Father. We don't have to go to a tabernacle. We don't have to go to a church building. But we, in any moment, in every situation, we can cry out, Abba, Father. Because He is real and present among us by His Spirit. God's people enjoy His presence. Yet there's more to come. The final two oracles we see outlined for us there in 20, the end of 23 and 24. We see these kind of highlighting one key truth. That God's people enjoy his victory through his king. That God's people enjoy his victory through his king. Balaam once again is taken by Balak to another mountain. And this time he sees all the people of Israel this time. Look there with me in verse chapter 24 verse 1. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of a man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the visions of Almighty, falling down on his eyes uncovered. Oh, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside the river, like the aloes that the Lord has planted, the cedar trees beside the water. Water shall flow from his buckets. His seed shall be in many waters. His king is higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. And continues on with the same language of, of God as the horn and that he will rise up against his adversaries and, and like a lion they will devour their enemy. Just reminding that God is going to bring about the victory not only against Balak but against all of those in the land. Read with me a little further. As Balaam has another word for people there. Look specifically with me at verse 15. This is the oracle of Ban, the son of Beor, the oracle of a man whose eyes are open, the oracle of him who hears the word of God, and he knows the knowledge of the Most High, and he sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of, of Sheath. Edom shall be despised. Seer also his enemies shall be disposed and 
Israel is doing valiantly. And we see kind of the word of, of prophecy and they will have victory after victory after victory after victory. One of the things we need to notice here is that specifically Balaam pronounces not only blessings and victory that come through that, but that the God is going to raise up a king one day through these people. A star of Jacob, a scepter will come from this line. You see, God's victories always throw flew, excuse me, flow through his king. God's victories always flow through his king. It's one of the interesting things when you study the storyline of scripture. First, it's a mediator and a priest, but then ultimately you see a king is given to Israel. And we're told that a son will come from the king, the line of David. And we see ultimately this is fulfilled in Christ himself. Yes, they find victory. Joshua leads them in and they conquer all of the different tribes that are mentioned here. And we see ultimately that God blesses his people, that their victory comes through someone who is a king, someone who is of the line of Judah. A scepter will rise, speaking almost prophetically, that there will come one day a king. And this we see, brothers and sisters, is Judah. Now think, think of how it spilled over here, right? It started with, bring this guy and we're going to curse. And it says, oh, God is faithful. Oh, God is with them. Oh, God is not only with them and present among them, but he is going to bring about the victory that he says he will do. And then now run to think of the New Testament. We see the climax of all of these promises as we read in 2 Corinthians. All of God's promises find their yes where? In Christ. He is the apex of these blessings for the people of Israel. He is the the climax of all of the promises and faithfulness of God that God has done. And he will continue to do the very thing he promised he will do. Christ became both our curse so that we might now be blessed. You could look at first Peter and say he took his curse upon his body on a tree. All of these wonderful truths reminding that we should be running to Christ. We don't chase Seers or deviners, we don't chase God on signs and omens. We run to Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The greatest of which is that he would make a people his very own. If this is not something you're comfortable with or I have a lot of knowledge of, I would, I would encourage you to find someone this afternoon and say, what does it mean that Christ is the better king? What does it mean that Christ has brought about a better covenant? These are great conversations you can have with one another over the dinner table today. But for those of us in this room who, who know Christ, I want to, I want to take us now. Remember, the point of Numbers 22 through 24 was to bolster confidence in God's people as they're about to move into this, this challenging time where they're going to conquer a, a, a bunch of Canaanite nations. And he says, guess what guys? I'm behind the scene taking care of things that you don't even realize are happening here. I'm doing things that, that my people are blessed and nobody can curse them. And I'm with you and I'm among you and I will be like a lioness that will help to destroy and devour those around you. We see this line repeated. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. No one can curse you. No one can sway God's hand. But we have similar promises as God's New Testament people. Go with me to one of my favorite ones in Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Again, I read this because I want this to be an encouragement to those of us who are in Christ. But maybe you're not in Christ. Maybe maybe you're not following Christ or believe that you even need him. 
I want you to ask yourself, what, how is your foundation in the midst of the things that are going to be mentioned here? So if you experience these things, what do you lean on? And are they as solid and beautiful as Christ has shown himself to be? Look there with me in verse 31 of chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Just like what they said in Numbers. I'm God's blessed people. Who can be against us? Well, now we know there'll be vast people against us, but God is what? Greater than. And if I'm attached to God, then I'm attached to his promises. And it says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who it is? Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of the Father indeed and is interceding for us. How, or excuse me, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. Brothers and sisters, this is the foundation of our hope. Our confidence is that God loves us and has sealed us by his spirit. And therefore, nothing can separate us from his love. Neither death, nor life, nor hail, nor angels, nor anything. And because of that, we're confident. And we cry out, we are more than what? Conquerors. That we have a a holy boldness to live with confidence in the world. And that's why I said back earlier that that's the greatest way we testify that God is still a living God. That we are a confident people. Not arrogant, not jerks, but confident. To live in the way God has called us to live. Because we believe he will carry out the things he will carry out. And the great last words, look there in verse 38. For I am... Sure. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, we are able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. This is the confidence of us, church. That we have a God who is always active and aware of our circumstances. That we have a God who is always real and present in our lives. He gives us the very one whom is called Comforter in the Spirit. And there is nothing, neither the greatest beautiful thing you've experienced or the most difficult circumstance that can separate us from the love of God. No one can curse God's people because we are sealed in Christ. May we be confident in this great love. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.